First Church Live. We're glad that you're joining us today. If you're new, my name's Chad. And before we dive into the message, I just want to make a quick announcement. With the state government here in Oklahoma opening back up many businesses, I know some of you guys are probably asking, when are we going to meet again here at First Church in person? Well, we're working on that. Our leadership has been meeting, our elders and senior leadership here at First Church, to discuss what that's going to look like. And we want to do so in a safe and in a responsible way. So we're going to make, be making an announcement this week about our future plans. We're going to introduce a gradual process for opening up our campuses again. But we just want to let you know that we need to follow the CDC as well as government guidelines. And so it's not as easy as it sounds. And so that's why we're going to implement a gradual process. We'll be explaining that more this week as we get everything together. But we just want to let you know that no matter when we do open back up for in-person services, we are going to continue to stream our work worship services online. So if you're an at-risk person or somebody who doesn't feel safe getting out right now, you can continue to worship with us online and participate with our church family. So we look forward to that as well. We're glad you're with us, and I'm excited to kick off this new series today entitled Curveball. Now, I can't see your hands right now because I know you're at home worshiping, but if I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you've ever been woke up in the middle of the night, startled by something, and when you woke up you thought, is this really happening or am I just dreaming? Have you ever had a moment like that? I know I have. Maybe you've been woke up by a noise or a light or something. You're like, did I really just hear that? Did I really just experience that or am I just dreaming? I had a moment like that last summer. It was a July evening. My family went to bed. I, I was asleep, dead asleep. And all of a sudden I heard about 2 a.m. that morning, I heard the sound of my doorbell ringing. And so I heard it and I thought, did I just dream that or is my doorbell really ringing at 2 a.m.? So I opened my eyes for a second and I heard it again, but still I was kind of half asleep. I was like, is my doorbell ringing at 2 a.m.? What's going on? And then it was followed by the sound of somebody beating on my front door and that scared me to death. So I jumped out of bed. I went to my front door to check out it, to check out what was going on. And before I got to the door, I was able to look out the window, I look out my peephole. I shouted out in a real deep as intimidating voice, voice as I could, who's there? Because I wanted to scare somebody. They were trying to cause some trouble or whatever. And I heard a voice on the other side of the door that was much deeper than mine say, oh, also police. And I freaked out even more. I thought, what is going on? So I look out the window, and sure enough, there are cop cars out there, police lights everywhere, emergency lights. I thought, what has just happened? I thought I lived in a safe neighborhood. So I turn off my alarm, and I open up the front door, and there are some police officers standing there. And come to find out, one of my elderly neighbors, she got a call in the middle of the night that one of her family members needed her. She got into her car, didn't put her glasses on, was kind of half asleep, and she has trouble seeing at night anyway, and she ran into my mailbox in her car. And this is what my mailbox looked like the very next day. As you can see, she hit it, tipped it over. And so it was rough looking, but she ended up being fine. No big deal. She had a few bruises, went to the hospital. They checked her out, and she was fine. And her insurance covered my mailbox and the damage to her car and all that stuff. And she's very sweet about it, very nice about it. But when I came back in the house that 
early morning, 2 a.m. or whenever it was, after I'd finished talking with the police and them giving me the police report, I walked in to find Alex, my son, awake. All the commotion had startled him, and he was in bed with Allison crying, and he kept saying over and over again as she was trying to console him, don't let them take my daddy to jail. Please don't let them take my daddy to jail. And so I came in, I sat down beside him, I was like, buddy, it's okay. Don't worry, your daddy hasn't done anything wrong to go to jail. And Allison looked at him and said, well, for now he has. And I thought, well, thanks, hon. I appreciate that a whole lot. But you know, that situation reminded me, you just never know what's going to happen in life. Life is full of unexpected twists and turns that we often don't see coming. You can plan and you can prepare, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to have something unexpected happen. We all know this to be true. Life is full of unexpected circumstances that catch us off guard. And there's a term from the world of sports, from baseball, that we actually use to describe this type of experience. It's the word curveball. You ever heard somebody say, have just been throwing a curveball or life's thrown me a curveball. I think many of us have probably said over the past few weeks, month and a half or so, hey, we've been throwing a curveball with this COVID-19 situation. And if you've ever played baseball, you know exactly what this is. You've probably had that embarrassing experience where you've jumped out of the batter's box only to hear the umpire say, strike, and you realize you were just fooled by a curveball. And in case you haven't had that experience, well, this is what a curveball is. A curveball is a pitch that is thrown with spin so that the ball makes an unexpected curve before it crosses home plate. And here's the thing. Curveballs don't just happen in baseball. They happen in life as well. Life often throws us curveballs that catch us totally off guard. But here's what I want to let you know today. Just because life throws you an unwanted curveball, a situation that you didn't want to be in, a difficulty, a problem, an issue, doesn't mean God isn't with you. In fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite of that. I love how the message translation or version uh, puts First uh, Peter 4, verse 12. It says, friends, when life gets really difficult, in other words, when you're thrown a curveball, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job, that God isn't with you. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced, because Christ experienced suffering. He experienced difficulties. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. In other words, just because you experience a curveball situation, don't assume that God isn't with you. The Bible repeatedly teaches that God is able to use the circumstances that we didn't see coming to unleash his love in new and powerful ways. And I don't know about you, but I've seen this happen in my life time and time again, and I bet you've seen it happen in your life as well. When you look at the different people that God used at the pages of scripture, scripture, you see that's the case for them as well. Over and over and over again, we see people, real people like you and me, who were thrown some curveball in life, and even though they didn't want that curveball to happen, God ended up using it for his glory, for his good. And so as we start this new series, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at different people in Scripture who were thrown some curveball in life, and God used that situation in incredible ways. And today, as we start this series, we're going to look at a guy who has thrown curveball after curveball after curveball. His name? Joseph. 
Now, if you're new to studying Scripture, this is the Joseph from the book of Genesis. This is not Joseph from the New Testament who is married to Mary, the mother of Jesus, who ended up becoming the earthly father of Jesus. Don't get these two Josephs mixed up. This is the Joseph from the Old Testament who lived about 2,000 years prior to the time of Jesus' birth. And Joseph's story is found in Genesis chapter 37, if you want to follow along there. Joseph was actually the 11th son of a guy named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and Joseph was 11th in line, and Joseph, he was born into a pretty dysfunctional family. You see, Jacob, Joseph's daddy, he had two wives, and between those two wives who are sisters, by the way, I know this sounds bad, and it is, these two wives, well, he had a favorite wife, and he let everybody know it. It was no secret who his favorite wife was, and her firstborn son was Joseph, and so Joseph became Jacob's favorite son, and everybody knew that as well. Jacob showed favoritism to both his favorite wife and his favorite son, and this wasn't hidden at all. In fact, look at what Genesis 37 says. In verses 3 and 4, it says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. Now, just let that sink in for a second. Loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. This is the coat of many colors that you probably heard about before. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. So Jacob shows this favoritism to Joseph, and all of his brothers know it. Now, let's be straightforward here. Let's be transparent. Every family experiences a little bit of sibling rivalry. I mean, sibling rivalry just happens among brothers or brothers and sisters. It just happens. I've seen this happen in my own family. I've got two little ones, a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and we see them compete all the time for attention. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, just a while back, uh, our Stone Canyon minister, C.J. Everson, was at our house, and he's been teaching my daughter, Addie, who's three, the song, the Trisha Yearwood song, She's in Love with the Boy. Addie loves that song. She loves to sing it. And so they were sitting at our kitchen table singing this song and Allison pulled out her phone to film it because we thought it was cute. Take a look at what was going on. Now, that's a cute video, but I don't just show it to you because it's cute. I stopped it right there because I want to show you what comes next. We were filming Addie singing. She's cute. She's doing a great job. She loves that song. But Alex, my son, couldn't stand the fact that Addie was getting all the attention. So this is what happened in the very next part of this video. Take a look. You'll see it right here. There they are still singing. And here it comes. There's Alex. He gotta, he's got to get in the shot, you know. He's got to get some attention. He couldn't stand the fact that his little sister was getting all the attention in that moment. Sibling rivalry just happens. It's common. We all know it. And something else that happens among siblings is siblings fight. I mean, even the best of siblings still fight sometimes. My brother and I have a younger brother's name, Philip. Here's a picture of us right here on the screen that was taken a few years ago. 
when his son was born and Addie was first born. And he and I get along now, and we love each other. But as kids, we fought like crazy. Like I said, he's two years younger than me, and we fought like crazy because that's just what brothers do. That's what siblings do. My parents would get on us, and yet we would still do it. I remember one time picking Philip up as we were fighting and throwing him on top of a glass table that my parents had at our house, and he shattered that glass table. Now, he didn't get cut up at all, but the table was in pieces, and I was in trouble forever after that. I mean, that's just what siblings do. It's not good, but it happens. So when we hear that Joseph and his brothers, that they fought and there's some rivalry going on, we get that. But let me let you know something. This was to an extreme. This was to a level that's not healthy that most of us probably never experience. Joseph, Joseph's brothers, they hate him to the point that they want to get rid of him, to the point that they want to kill him. And this hatred, it's fueled by the favoritism of their father. I mean, did you notice again what the Scripture says about Jacob? Jacob loved Joseph more I mean, can you imagine that being known in a family? Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. So Joseph didn't have the same workload that everyone else had. Joseph got special privileges that the others didn't get. Joseph even got special gifts that the others didn't receive, like his coat of many colors. I mean, that was a coat, that was a robe that royalty would wear. That was a coat that was reserved for a king. Joseph was king in that family because his daddy made him that way, and everyone knew it. And because his brothers knew it, they hated him. And Joseph didn't help matters any. Joseph sometimes even believed his own press clippings. There was one occasion when Joseph had this dream that all of his family, including his brothers, were going to bow down to him. You know what Joseph does? Joseph goes and he tells his brothers about his dream. Now, that's not very smart. Now, why would Joseph do that, knowing that his brothers hate him? Well, either he was completely naive and stupid and didn't realize it would offend his brothers, or he knew exactly what he was doing. And I think it's the latter, because we find out later on, Joseph was an extremely smart and intelligent guy. He was a great leader. He knew how to read people. I mean, Joseph knew exactly what he was doing. Joseph was believing his own press clippings, and I think maybe he got a little bit arrogant, a little bit prideful, and his brothers, they had had enough. So one day they're out working in the fields, Joseph comes along, and they come up with this scheme to get rid of him. They capture him, they beat him up, brutally beat him up, they tear up his coat of many colors that he was wearing, and they throw him into a well like a prisoner, and this caravan of merchants, these Ishmaelites come along, and they sell their brother Joseph into slavery. Can you imagine selling your own sibling, selling your own brother into slavery? But that's what they do, and then they go to their father. And they bring his coat of many colors, which they've now covered in animals' blood. And they say, they basically set up a false crime scene, a fake crime scene. They make their father believe that some wild animal killed their brother, killed their father's son. And Jacob, their dad, believes their story. In fact, in Genesis 37, verse 34, it says this, that Jacob mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. Jacob said, I will go to my grave mourning for my son. And then he would weep. Now, can you imagine causing your dad all this unnecessary pain? Making him think that his son is dead when his son really wasn't. But his other sons, 
decided that putting their dad through all that pain was worth it if it meant getting rid of Joseph. That's how much they hated him. Now, imagine being in Joseph's shoes. Imagine going from being treated like royalty in your father's household to now being sold as a slave. Talk about being thrown a curveball. That's what Joseph had just experienced. And so these Ishmaelite traders, they bring Joseph to a foreign country, the land of Egypt. And Egypt at this time was the world's superpower. It was the most powerful nation on the face of the planet. And they sell Joseph to, a, to an official in the king of Pharaoh's court, an official of, Pot, of, uh, an official of Pharaoh whose name was Potiphar. And so they sell Joseph to Potiphar, this high official in Egypt. And Joseph now in this moment has a choice to make. He can either grumble against God and complain about his situation, be mad at God, or for the first time in his life, he can trust God like he never has before. And that's what Joseph decides to do. I think Joseph is humbled in this moment because he's lost everything. And all he has left at this moment is God. And so he turns to God and he trusts God. And even though he's now a slave to this man named Potiphar, he's going to be the best slave that he can possibly, possibly be because he wants to honor God in the position that he's now in. He wants to reflect God's character in the position that he's now in. And Potiphar notices something different about Joseph, that Joseph has a positive attitude, a better attitude than the rest of all of his slaves, that Joseph works harder than everyone else, that Joseph's God is on his side, or at least appears to be. And so Potiphar is impressed by his slave named Joseph. Look at what the scripture goes on to say, verse 4 of chapter 39. This pleased Potiphar, Joseph's attitude and his work ethic, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All of his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. Joseph here basically becomes chief of staff of Potiphar's estate and all of his businesses. Joseph becomes head over everything in Potiphar's household. That's how much Potiphar trusts Joseph. And things are starting to look up now for Joseph because Potiphar has noticed him as a great leader and as a faithful servant. But Potiphar isn't the only one who notices Joseph. Potiphar's wife also notices Joseph but for a much, much different reason. Look at verses 6 through 9 of Genesis 39. It says, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. I can relate to that. No, I'm just kidding. He was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded, but Joseph refused. So the story now takes a wild turn. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. And even though this happens on more than one occasion, Joseph over and over again refuses to sleep with her, refuses to give in to what she's trying to get him to do. And I'm kind of impressed with Joseph here because Joseph is a young man, late teens, early 20s probably at this point. And I know a lot of guys who would not have refused. 
I mean, Potiphar's wife, she's a powerful woman. And Joseph, he's been through a whole lot. He's now a slave, probably with no chance of ever getting married. And he's been through a lot of trouble. He might start to think, hey, I deserve a little bit of pleasure. I deserve this. And besides that, she's the one that's making the, the offer. I mean, she's the one that's trying to seduce me. A lot of guys probably would have given in to that temptation. A lot of guys would have given in to that pressure, but not Joseph. Joseph refuses her time and time again. He does what's right, and I think there's a reason why he does what's right. Look at what Joseph says to Potiphar's wife. He says in verse 9, How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Now, look at who Joseph is worried about hurting. Yes, he knows it will hurt Potiphar, his master, and he doesn't want to do that. Yes, he knows even even though this affair might bring about some temporary pleasure in the moment, it could be destructive down the road. He gets all that, but what he's most concerned about is hurting his relationship with God because his relationship with God is what is most important to him. See, it's one thing to be sitting in church and say, hey, I'm not going to do that ever. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep myself pure. It's another thing to be sitting in your small group or among your Christian friends and say, hey, I'm going to keep myself pure because that's what God wants me to do. It's another thing to do it when you're faced with that pressure, when you're face-to-face with that pressure. That's why I always tell people when clothes start to be unbuttoned and unzipped, now's not the time to figure out whether or not you want to stay pure. A lot of times it's too late by that point. You've got to make the decision long before. And that's what Joseph did. Joseph made the decision long before. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Even if that means I'm going to resist temporary pleasure in the moment, my relationship with God is what's most important because what's in front of me may be gone tomorrow, but my relationship with God lasts forever. And how many of us have ever been in the situation where we've said, I'm never going to do that. And then pressure comes and we give in. I'm impressed with Joseph because he knew what was most important. And so Potiphar's wife keeps coming back to him, wanting for him to sleep with her, and Joseph keeps refusing. In fact, he even runs away from her. In verse 9, look at what it says. I'm sorry, in verse 10, look at what it says. It says, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. That is a good thing to do when you're facing temptation. Get away from that temptation. Get as far away from it as you possibly can. That's what Joseph does, but Potiphar's wife refuses to give up. So one day she finally makes her final play here to try to get Joseph to sleep with her, and she goes to Joseph and She basically grabs his cloak, his clothes that he's wearing, and she says, sleep with me. And he looks at her and says, no, she refuses to let go. So what does Joseph do? He runs away from her. But here's the thing. She has such a firm grip on his clothes that he runs out of the room naked. He runs out of the room and she's still holding his cloak. And in this day and age, a slave would have had one cloak, one garment of clothing. And so she's holding Joseph's clothes in her hands. And as he runs out of the room, wherever they were, And he's naked. Probably other slaves saw it. Other people saw it. And so Potiphar's wife is mad that Joseph has refused her advances. And she's embarrassed. And so she goes to her husband. And she falsely accuses Joseph and says that Joseph tried to force himself on her. So what does Potiphar do in response? Potiphar has Joseph thrown in prison. Joseph does the right thing. And he's thrown in prison for it. 
Now, I have to wonder in this day and age, the accusation of rape, well, that could have had Joseph killed. Potiphar could have had Joseph put to death because of that, but he doesn't. Instead, he has Joseph thrown in prison. I have to wonder, did Potiphar wonder whether his wife was telling the truth? Did he know what his wife was really like? I don't know, maybe. But either way, Joseph does what's right, and he ends up in a prison cell. And that just reminds me, the Bible never promises that if you follow God, bad stuff won't happen. The Bible never promises that if you follow God, if you do what's right, bad stuff won't happen. But Joseph knows that God has a better story for him, even if that means having to suffer a little bit now. So what happens? Joseph is thrown into prison. And as he's thrown into prison, he again refuses to complain and grumble against God, to be mad at God. Instead, once again, he puts his trust in God, and he's faithful to the situation he's been placed in. He decides that even though he's in another horrible situation, he is going to honor God with his actions. He is going to reflect God's character, and he's going to be the best prisoner that that prison had ever seen. And so what happens? The warden of the prison notices Joseph's attitude, notices that he's different from all the other prisoners, notices there's something special about him, notices his obedience. And so in verse 22 of Genesis 39, it says, Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. So what happens even though Joseph is a prisoner, the warden trusts Joseph and puts him in charge of all the other prisoners. Instead of griping, instead of complaining, instead of getting mad at God, he decides, I'm going to continue to honor God in the situation I find myself in. I've been throwing another curveball here. I did what was right, and yet I was still thrown in prison, but I'm going to continue to honor God because I know he is still with me. And here's the thing. The same should be true for us. Every circumstance, whether good or bad, can be turned into an opportunity to honor and reflect God's character. Every circumstance, whether it's good or bad, can be turned into an opportunity for us to honor God and reflect His character. You know, as I was thinking about this curveball series, I was thinking about different experiences I've had going to ball games with my family. And about a year or so ago, my family took a couple-day trip to Little Rock, Arkansas. We'd never been to Arkansas before, so we just wanted to get away. We stayed a few nights in a hotel and did some of the tourist things to do. And we went to see a minor league ball game, minor league baseball game there in Little Rock. We saw the Arkansas Travelers play. I'm not sure if you ever got to see them play, but it was a fun environment. We had a good night together as a family. And one thing that Alex and me like to do we always like to get autographs of players. And I know most of these minor league players' autographs are not going to be worth anything, but still it's fun, and we like to get as many as we can. So I'm looking up the roster of the players on Arkansas's team before we get to the game, and I find out that one of the players is a former Kentucky baseball player. Now, if you're new, I'm from Kentucky. I'm a huge Kentucky sports fan. So when I found out that Evan White played for the Arkansas Travelers, like, I got to meet him. And so Alex, we went to Walmart, got him a little baseball so that he could have some 
sign, and I got me a baseball too, and I just wanted Evan's autograph. I wanted to meet him as well. And so we're waiting in line where all the players come out of the locker room, and we're getting a chance to see them. And some of the players, you know, they were kind of rude, and they wouldn't sign people's autographs. Even little kids, they just passed them by as if they were too good to be bothered by those little kids, too good to sign an autograph. There were other players who did sign autographs, but they did it kind of hesitantly. You know, they were kind of, well, I guess so. And they act like, again, they were too good to do it, but they would still sign autographs. But when Evan came by, he stopped and talked to every single person who wanted his autograph. He was kind. He was nice. He carried on conversation. He acted as if when you were talking to him, you were the most important person in the world at that moment. And I just thought it was, he, it was because he was from Kentucky, honestly, because Kentucky people just like that. But when he came and he talked to us, I mean, he got down and talked to Alex, took a picture with him. He talked to me. He noticed we were wearing Kentucky gear. And so he asked if we were from Kentucky. We said, well, that's where we're from. We live in Oklahoma now, but we saw you're on the team. We wanted to meet you, and it was just a great few minutes we had talking with him. He signed Alex's baseball, and he signed mine. And after he walked away, I looked at the baseball, and this is what he wrote on it. There's his autograph, but then he put on there Colossians 3.23. And I don't know if you know what Colossians 3.23 says, but it says this. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Whatever you do, no matter what situation you find yourself in, do it to honor God. Don't act like you're serving or working for men. Do it as if you're working for God. That's what he wrote on his baseball. And now Evan White has signed a six-year contract with the Seattle Mariners. He's playing in the big leagues. And I know playing minor league baseball is not the same as being thrown in prison, being falsely accused like Joseph experienced. But still, I think Joseph had that same Colossians 3.23 attitude. Whatever situation you find yourself in, Live in such a way that you honor God, that you reflect his character. And that's exactly what Joseph did. And that's why over and over and over again, as we read Joseph's story, we see this phrase in the book of Genesis. We see, but the Lord was with Joseph. Over and over again in his story, you will see that phrase or something similar to it. But the Lord was with Joseph. And in this context, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. Even in a prison cell, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph knew it, and God continued to show him his faithful love. Just because life throws you an unwanted curveball doesn't mean God isn't with you. In fact, the Bible teaches God can use those curveball situations, those situations and circumstances that we didn't see coming to unleash his love in new and powerful ways. And that's exactly what happens in Joseph's life. Let me quickly summarize what happens. Basically, Joseph is in prison for a little bit longer. He gets to meet a couple other guys that are thrown in prison. And these Guys happened to once serve in Pharaoh's court, the king of Egypt's court. One was Pharaoh's cupbearer. The other one was Pharaoh's baker. And these two guys have these weird dreams that kind of disturb them. And Joseph has been given the ability by God to interpret dreams. So he interprets their dreams. And what Joseph predicted came true. One of those guys, the cupbearer, he eventually gets out of prison and he gets to go serve Pharaoh again. Years pass. Joseph is still stuck in a prison cell, but years pass and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he also has a disturbing dream. And he's so disturbed that he wants an answer to what this dream means. And none of his wise men, none of his scholars can give him any comfort whatsoever. And so... Pharaoh's cupbearer says, hey, I remember this guy that once interpreted one of my dreams. Maybe he's still in prison. His name was Joseph. 
They pull Joseph out of prison. Joseph goes. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh is comforted for the very first time. Joseph lets him know that there is a famine coming to the land. And Egypt needs to get prepared now because if not, tons of people, thousands of people are going to die. And so Pharaoh trusts Joseph and he says, okay, we're going to do what you tell us to do. And not only are we going to do what you tell us to do, Pharaoh says, I'm going to put you in charge of this famine relief project. And I'm going to promote you to the second highest position in all of Egypt. No one will be above you besides me. Look at what Pharaoh says to Joseph. He says, you will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Now, can you imagine being in this spot? Egypt, again, is the world superpower, the most powerful nation on the face of the planet. And so what that meant was Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt, was the most powerful man on earth. And so now Joseph is right underneath him. Joseph, outside of Pharaoh, is the most powerful man on the face of the planet. Imagine coming from being a slave to being in this position of power What an incredible, incredible experience. And Joseph ends up preparing Egypt for this famine. And not only does he prepare Egypt for this famine, he also allows Egypt to be in a position where they are able to help other nations around them who are also suffering. So all this comes full circle because this famine affects the entire entire Middle East. And that means back in Joseph's homeland where his brothers and dad are still alive, They're suffering. They're starving. And Jacob, Joseph's dad, sends his brothers to Egypt because he hears there's food there and says, hey, go and see if you can get us some food because we're starving. So Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery go to Egypt not knowing that that's where their brother ended up. And they end up standing before Joseph himself. They don't realize it's him because now Joseph is dressed like an Egyptian and he walked like an Egyptian and talked like an Egyptian. and He had a shaved head and he had makeup on and all that kind of stuff. They had no idea that this was their brother and they asked him for food. And for a while, Joseph plays around with them because he realizes who they are. He recognizes them. But eventually he can't hide his identity anymore and he says, I am your brother Joseph. And when Joseph tells them this, they're scared to death because they know what they did to him. They know how they sold him into slavery. They realize that Joseph has the power now to get back at them. And Joseph could have done that. He could have got back at them if he wanted to. But he doesn't. Instead, Joseph shows his brothers the same love and grace that God had shown him over the years. And I love what Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, you meant to hurt me, but God turned your evil into good to save the lives of many people, which is being done. You meant to hurt me. Those right there are two of the most powerful words in Scripture, but God. You meant to hurt me, but God turned your evil into good. And what ends up happening is Joseph allows his brothers and his dad and all their people to move to Egypt and live there so that they can survive this famine, be rescued from their starvation. And Joseph is able not only to help out the Egyptian people and save thousands of lives, he's able to help out the Israelite people as well, save their lives. 
His brothers meant to harm him. But God used this curveball that was thrown at Joseph to save thousands and thousands of people. God used it for good. And I believe God can do the same in our lives today. See, when we look at a curveball situation, when we look at a difficulty or a bad thing that's going on, instead of getting upset and being mad and frustrated, maybe what we should do is say, God, we trust you. And we don't like this situation, but we trust you. And we're going to let you use this situation in any way that you can to bring about your good. As I said earlier, God often uses circumstances we didn't see coming to unleash his love in new and powerful ways. And I believe God can use this COVID-19 situation for just that reason. I don't believe God caused this situation, but he has allowed it to happen. And since he has allowed it to happen, that means he can use it for his good. So let me ask you, right now, how are you opening yourself up for God to use. Right now, whatever circumstance, whatever situation you find yourself in, how are you opening yourself up for God to use? Because there are two key truths I believe we learn from this story of Joseph, and the first is this. God sometimes allows temporary pain to bring about long-term gain. See, God is more concerned about our character than he is our comfort. And he will sometimes allow for us to go through temporary pain, temporary suffering, temporary problems and issues in order to bring about long-term gain. So don't get focused on the issue you're facing right now. Turn over to God, trust Him, and God can use it to bring about something better. But then there's a second truth that we learn from this story, and it's this. When you're thrown a curveball, never forget God is always closer than He appears. See, at any point, Joseph could have said, God, where are you? But Joseph remembered that even though it seemed as if evil was winning in his life, even though it seemed as if bad thing after bad thing was happening to him, God was still near. God was still with him. If you've ever driven a car in this country, you've probably noticed that on one of your side view mirrors, there's a statement across the bottom. And the statement is, objects in mirror are closer than they actually appear. Because manufacturers and the government wants to remind you that what you see in your mirror, it's actually closer than what it appears in the mirror. And I believe the same is true for us when it comes to life, when we look to God. See, sometimes we look around and we think, it doesn't seem like that God is very close. But then once you get past that situation and you look back, what you figure out is God is always closer than what he appears to be. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And I don't have to look at a side mirror on a car to be reminded of that. All I have to do is look to the cross. I've got a cross here that my son actually made me. Well, he didn't make it. It's a foam cross that I think Allison did with him as an art project. And she did this a couple years ago. And so he decided to write on the front of this cross the name Jesus. And I've got it blown up here on the screen if you want to see it. He tried to write Jesus, but he left out the U, so it just says Jess across the front of it. And so he gave it to me. He said, Daddy, it says Jesus. He was all excited to give it to me. And then I was like, this is great, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Then I told him, I said, but Jesus has a U in it. I wanted him to know that. So if he ever wrote the name again, I didn't necessarily care in the moment, but I wanted him to know that. So he immediately took the cross. He went back to where his marker or paint, whatever it is he used here, he went back to it, and he drew a big U right here. And I've kept this forever because this cross is a reminder to me, and it should be to you as well, that when Jesus was on the cross, you 
you were what was most important to him. That's why on the cross he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's why Jesus said on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And I don't believe that wasn't just a promise to the thief on the cross. That was a promise to everyone who follows Jesus as Lord. You were on his mind when he was on the cross. And I've kept this forever because all I have to do is look at the cross and I'm reminded that even in one of the darkest, well, probably the darkest moment in human history, God was really a lot closer than when anyone knew. And the same is true in my life. When everything looks dark, when everything looks sad and discouraging, when everything is uncertain, God is always a lot closer than he appears. I love verse 21 that we already looked at. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph. Just take out Joseph's name for a second. Put in your name. But the Lord was with Chad. In the midst of this COVID-19 situation, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my heartache, in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my problems and issues, in the midst of my stresses and pressures, in the midst of my temptations, the Lord was with me. The Lord is with you. And he continues to show me, continues to show you his faithful love. Yes, life is full of curveballs. But just because life throws us a curveball doesn't mean that God isn't with us. He's often a lot closer than he appears. So like Joseph, let's trust him. Let's be faithful to him. Let's reflect his glory. And I believe God can use those situations that we didn't see coming to unleash his love in a powerful and incredible way. Would you pray with me? Father, we just love you so much and we thank you for reminding us that you are always with us. And we pray that even in the midst of these uncertain and unprecedented times, that we will remember that. And even though we've been thrown a curveball in our culture and our society, you are still with us and you can use this situation for your good. We place our trust in you, we place our hope in you, and we look to the cross to remember you're always closer than we realize. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.